If unsaved people are totally unable to perceive spiritual truths, then how in the world does anybody ever get saved? Does God just force people to get saved? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Monday, June the 15th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome, you guys. I'm so glad to have you guys here with us. I'm sorry that this is coming out a little bit later than usual today. Uh, Yesterday was my birthday, my 37th birthday. Yikes, I can't believe I'm that old. But anyway, uh, on Sundays, usually what I do is I read uh, some commentaries and I do some studying on the passage that we're going to be studying on Monday. And then Monday morning, I wake up and maybe read some more commentaries and write out uh, the lesson plan. So anyway, yesterday being my birthday, I didn't read any of my uh, commentaries or anything. I waited until today. So today, the lesson is coming out a little bit later than usual. So anyway, God bless you guys. I'm so glad to have you guys here with us. I do want to say before we get started that it might be helpful for you guys uh, with today's lesson for you to listen to last week's lesson first. Uh, It's talking about spiritual truths and how unsaved people can't perceive spiritual truths. And uh, in order for you to have that grounding or that foundation, we established that last week in last week's lesson, so make sure you go back and listen to our lesson on Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, before you listen to this lesson. But anyway, I also just wanted to remind you guys that uh, that this month, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which of course is our ministry, is going to get a copy of the book, True for You, But Not for Me, Deflating the Slogans That Leave Christians Speechless. Yeah, this is a fantastic book. This belongs in every Christian's library, and there aren't many books that I would actually recommend more than this one. So anyway, if that's a book that you'd like, it's available on Amazon and other uh, other book retailers, but everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more this month is going to get a copy of this book sent to you. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that uh, that we're able to perceive spiritual truths because you have saved us. And it's not on our own. Uh, it's because we have the Holy Spirit in us. So we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that he does in our lives in drawing us to you and uh, helping us to understand you better. And so, Lord, I pray that this lesson uh, would just be magnified by the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we understand you better. May we understand your heart and your desire to save all people. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as most of you are probably aware, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of, uh, of planting a church here in the northwest Arkansas area. And, you know, as we're planting, we actually aren't having any actual 
services of our own. Rather, what we're doing right now is laying the groundwork for having services in the future. And actually, we are getting ready to go into phase two here, uh, in which we're going to be going around asking people to come to vision meetings. And this uh, this is going to be scary. So I would really appreciate your prayers. Uh, if, if you guys would just keep us in prayer as we do that, we're going to be having these vision meetings in the weeks to come. So anyway, until we can actually hold our own services, we've actually started to make another local church our temporary home, for lack of a better word. You know, just yesterday, the church that we've been going to announced that a young married couple was getting ready to leave for a mission in Tibet in just a few days. And this reminded me of my own mission experience uh, when I went to Moldova for five weeks a few years ago. And, you know, naturally, one of the more intimidating things about going on a mission anywhere to to any foreign country is uh, the fact that you will need to learn an entirely new language. Uh, For myself, when I was in Moldova, you know, after about three weeks, uh, I had learned some of the just very basics of the Romanian language, which is what they speak in Moldova. And the kids in one particular village named Paiku were very patient with me while our translator would teach me a word or two and I'd practice saying it with them. And these kids were great. But, you know, honestly, all of it could never have happened if I hadn't had a translator, somebody who was fluent in Romanian and somewhat fluent in English and able to teach me some Romanian and to translate what the Moldovan people were saying to me. And after venturing into the inner city with uh, with some of the other missionaries I was there with one day to do some shopping, I found out really quick that I had absolutely no hope of understanding what anyone was saying to me without Victor, our translator. I mean, what a fiasco that was, trying to, trying to go down there and do some shopping without a translator. But, you know, because the duration of their mission to Tibet is actually going to be for three years, the first thing these young missionaries from this church that we've been going to are going to need to do is enroll in a language program, and that's their plan, in order that they can learn the language and thus nullify the need for a translator. Well, you know, in our study on the book of Romans, Paul has started to discuss the importance of relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's uh, been talking about a little bit up to this point, and this is really what the, the gist of chapter 8 is, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power uh, that we have in yielding to the Holy Spirit. But, you know, in our previous lesson, Paul started to discuss the fact that the mind which is set on the flesh is actually set on death, but the mind that's set on the Spirit is set on the things of the Spirit, among which, Paul tells us, would be life and peace. Well, in the process of contrasting the two possible ways for the believer to live, Paul has revealed to us that, just like I would have had no possibility of understanding what someone in Moldova spoke to me without a translator, non-believers have a similar problem. They can't understand spiritual matters, because in order to do so, they must have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul isn't done discussing the two ways that a believer can live, however, and thus he continues by writing in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. He writes, quote, Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, let's start with that first phrase. The mindset on the flesh is hostile 
toward God. And you know, a lot of people have interpreted this to be applied to non-believers only, but we've already demonstrated uh, in our previous lesson that Paul is speaking to believers. Uh, From chapter 5 of Romans onward, Paul's only been addressing believers. And while this is specifically addressed to believers, however, it's undeniable that this also describes the fixed state of the unsaved person. See, because they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, their mind is set on the desires of the flesh, which would be money, uh, popularity, materialism, and a lifestyle of serving and satisfying themselves by whatever means are necessary. So because their mind is fixed on these things, their mind is hostile toward God. The unsaved person hates God because in their own mind, they are God with a small g, mind you. They have no interest in surrendering the throne of their mind and soul to another, and to them, to do so is sheer foolishness. However, with this being the case, a very, very important question comes up, and that is this. How does anyone ever get saved? If the unsaved mind is fixed in a state of hostility toward God, and we believe that it is, that's what this verse is saying, then how does it ever become unfixed? How can a person who can't free themselves from a lifestyle of living for the sake of just satisfying themselves constantly ever become saved? Well, the answer is simple and not so simple. On their own, they can't. The unsaved person doesn't recognize their condition. They don't recognize the fact that they are completely depraved because they see everyone else doing the exact same things that they themselves are doing. You know, when they're around a saved person who refuses to participate in their depravity, they find fault in the saved person. And this is probably something that you guys are very, very familiar with. You know, they'll say things like, well, what's wrong with that guy? Doesn't he like to have fun? Or, you know, I could never live like that. It just seems so mundane and boring to be so religious. Well, you know, one of the hardest things for me uh, personally, of uh, you know, social networking, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook and MySpace, and as a result, I've come across a lot of people uh, f- from high school and, and college and everything. But you know, one of the hardest aspects of this is trying to witness to people, trying to uh, trying to share Christ with people who knew me before I became a Christian. You know, I've come across scores of people I went to high school with who remember me as being angry and rebellious, vile, depraved. And you know, one thing I've heard from uh, more people than I'd, I'd like to remember is this. They say, how and when did you get so religious? Religious? Well, you know, that's one thing that I'm not. You see, religion is about rules rather than relationship. The believer is set free from being under a set of rules. And Paul told us in the previous chapter, chapter 7, that those rules have been replaced with a relationship with our Redeemer, Christ Jesus. You know, religion is something that humanity has invented on its own as a means of reaching God on their own terms. But Christianity acknowledges that it's impossible to please God on our own terms. That's exactly what Paul tells us here. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Man-made religions are all in vain. It's just vanity. And this is another testament to the exclusivity of Christianity. Any given individual is either saved or unsaved, and either they have the Holy Spirit or they do not. And thus, they're either in the Spirit or in the flesh. There's no third option. 
Donald Gray Barnhouse, in his commentary, he writes that, quote, the most important implication in that light is that it is totally impossible for the saved man to reach the mind of the lost man with any presentation of the gospel, end quote. And indeed, the mind of the unsaved person cannot subject itself to the law of God. And as the Holy Spirit is telling us right now through Paul's pen, their mind is not even able to subject itself to the law of God. And hence, the futility of the religions of the flesh, which would include any and every religious system that's been created by humanity. Well, you know, the fact that the human condition by default is that of depravity, coupled with the fact that the mind of the unsaved person is helplessly blind when it comes to spiritual matters, has led a lot of people to affirm that we don't even have a free will, but that, rather, God elects some for heaven and some for hell in accordance with his own sovereign will. And this is a core belief. This is a central tenet of strong Calvinism. Uh, you know, that is that humanity is so utterly depraved that the image of God no longer exists within the unsaved person. And thus humanity is utterly incapable of responding to God. And thus, for the strong Calvinist, only the unconditional election and irresistible grace of God can save a person. And so therefore, the saved play no role whatsoever in their receiving salvation. It's basically forced upon them in spite of their will. That's what strong Calvinism teaches. Uh, Barnhouse writes elsewhere, quote, There are those who reject this truth because they cling tenaciously to the error that man is capable of doing something for himself, of having some part in the inception of his own salvation. If one dares to confront them with this text, that the unsaved man has a mind that is in a state of hostility to God, and that his mind neither will nor can submit to God, they will ignorantly babble that Quote, whoever will, from Mark chapter 8, verse 34, certainly must mean that whosoever will may come. And you know, it's at this point in our study that I believe we should thoroughly respond to and refute such nonsense. I believe that, uh, that one of the primary keys to understanding our role in the inception of salvation is found in a verse that actually strong Calvinists love to use, and it's one that we've briefly considered before, and that would be the verse that says, no one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's from John chapter 6, verse 44. Well, when we read this, note, first of all, that Jesus is making a positive statement in a negative form. He says, no one can come to me. That's negative form. However, wherever a statement is given in the negative, it's also implying something necessarily positive. For example, to say, no people are purple, uh, which is worded in negative form, would be the same as saying, all people are are non-purple, which is the same thing, only rephrased in the positive. So in order to understand this verse, maybe it'll be helpful to, uh, to rephrase this statement in the positive form, thus saying, all persons who come to Christ are drawn to him by the Father. So just as important as noting what it does say is to note what it does not say. Let's note, for example, that it does not say that all persons who are drawn to Christ by the Father will actually come to Christ. Rather, it says that all people who come to Christ are drawn by the Father. There is a huge difference. There is no logical similarity between those two 
positions. Well, you know, in one of our first lessons we had on the book of Romans, we discussed the parable of the wedding feast from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 13, in which certain slaves in this parable, which represented Israel, uh, were unwilling to come to the wedding. That's the word that's used, unwilling. And the fact that the parable is saying basically that the people of Israel were unwilling to come and accept Christ indicates that they had a choice in the matter. Since, you know, after all, we're only capable of willing that which we have a choice in. You know, I don't will, uh, for example, that my heart beats about 60 times per minute any more than I will that I be uh, six feet tall. Uh, Yeah, my heart rate is around 60 beats per minute, and yeah, I'm six feet tall, but that's not because of my will. You know, if a person has the ability to be unwilling, they must first have the ability to be willing. That's a necessary precondition. Otherwise, linguistically speaking, this makes absolutely no sense. In our parable, the king sends out some other slaves and tells them to go out to the main highways and invite everyone they possibly can. And thus, the wedding hall is filled with people who are described as both good and evil. And the entire parable is reduced to meaningless rubble if strong Calvinism is true. Instead of inviting only a select few, the king desires that everyone be there. And then in Acts chapter 17, Dr. Luke records an instance in which Paul is attempting to reason with unbelievers in Athens, which at the time would have been just a a, a total religious center. It would have been a mecca of these uh, religions of the flesh. And then in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 17, Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So again, we see that all people are being given an invitation. We should also note that God's desire is for all people to be saved. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, another strong line of evidence against the idea that humanity is too depraved to respond to God is the fact that unbelievers are told to, uh, to believe or to repent. It's in the imperative. Why would it be in the imperative if they don't have a choice in the matter? And finally, we should also note that Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 reveals that the reason that it's morally wrong to murder is because to murder is to attack the image of God in man. Now, if that image is erased, then it's no longer morally wrong to murder. However, this verse provides a clear, solid indication that the image of God is not completely erased, but it's still present in humanity, although to a lesser degree. It's effaced, but not erased. So taking all these passages into account, we see, first of all, that God desires all persons to be saved. Secondly, we see that only those who are drawn to Christ by the Father can actually come to Christ. And third, we have what appears to be something of a a conflict or a dilemma. The fact that the mind of the non-believer is hostile toward God, unable to understand spiritual things, in addition with the fact that there must be some kind of willingness on behalf of the individual to accept the gift of salvation. So how do we resolve what appears to be something of a discrepancy here or a contradiction? How can an individual who's unable to come to Christ by themselves come to Christ? 
Well, by taking everything that we've seen here at face value. First of all, because God desires for all to be saved, he draws all people to himself at some point in an individual's life. Romans chapter 1 told us very clearly that a person is handed over to their sin. Three times, God hands them over to their sins. But first of all, he draws them. And while it's true that Scripture provides no indication as to how long that window of opportunity will stay open, that window of opportunity has to be there. There has to be a point where they either accept or reject the gospel. So the person who's being drawn by God is temporarily able to perceive at least enough spiritual truth that they're able to respond by either accepting or declining the offer to come to Christ. And it's with that in mind that we must realize how worthless apologetics is when it's used to present spiritual truths to the unsaved. You know, the unsaved person, it doesn't matter how good your your argument is. It doesn't matter how good your logic is. The unsaved person will abandon logic and reason before they put their faith in Jesus for their salvation unless, unless they're at that point in their life where the window of opportunity is open and they're being drawn. As we talked about last week, Lee Strobel was an atheist, came across some apologetics, and he was saved. He had an intellectual uh, barrier between him and the gospel, but then he was saved. Well, he's a perfect example of this. You know, it doesn't matter if you're the most gifted speaker in the history of mankind. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, you cannot lead an unsaved person to Christ. You cannot lead an unsaved person to salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. An unsaved person can read through Scripture over and over and over again and still not understand a single word. And if you don't believe me, (laughs) turn on the History Channel sometime. There are plenty of guys on there who know what the Bible says, but they just don't get it. You know, well-worded gospel presentations can and will never bring a person to Christ, and neither can apologetics. Nevertheless, God equips men and women to be evangelists and apologists because those people, the evangelists and apologists, will represent monuments of condemnation when an unsaved person gets judged, when they stand before God someday. If those who aren't elected by God never have the opportunity to respond to God drawing them, then obviously a righteous and just God couldn't condemn the non-elect any more than I can be, you know, disappointed in my kids for running slower than 100 miles an hour. Yeah, it's if it's impossible, I can't be upset with them. The unsaved are condemned because at some point in their life, the opportunity to come to Christ was presented to them, and they were unwilling. Even though the window was open, maybe they closed it, maybe they walked away from it, they didn't want to have anything to do with it, they were unwilling. Now we have to remember that These two verses that we're looking at today are actually written to believers, not to unbelievers. And that in itself is actually another reason that one can't use this passage in justifying strong Calvinist theology. But what does this mean when applied to believers? Well, stick around next week, because we will cover that next week on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once again for your word and for the opportunity to learn more about you. Lord, this is such a uh, such a controversial subject, and I've put a lot of uh, of thought and deliberation into this. I have sought your will, and uh, Lord, I just pray that you would bless this message, that it would instruct us, uh, that it would teach us more about you. Lord, we thank you so much, and we praise you for being a God who loves everybody, because you are love. 
We thank you, Lord, that you've set us apart. We thank you that you've saved us and that you can reveal spiritual truth to us now. Lord, I just pray that uh, we'll have a better understanding of you and that we'll love you all the more because of it. Lord, my prayer is that this lesson was pleasing to you. We love you and thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys so much for listening today. I realize that this is a very controversial subject. Uh, If you have any questions, and I'm sure there are plenty of questions out there, don't hesitate to ask me. My email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. You know, if we get enough questions about it, we can do a QA and a about this issue uh, specifically. I'm more than willing to discuss this issue, and uh, I'm always open to correction. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus, only you can quench my thirst, so let it rain. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a para-ministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a non-profit, listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.